Well, some of you know that in my eighth grade Easter play, I played the role of Judas Iscariot. I still remember some of my lines. I won't bore you with them now. But I remain to this day very interested in the man. I often wondered what happened to him. Jesus told us the good news of the gospel is, is simply this. It's simply this. Jesus said, repent and believe. You know, repent. Turn from our sin to God. Uh, believe. Put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But Judas Iscariot did the exact opposite. Instead of turning from, God, from his sin to God, instead of trusting in Jesus, Judas Iscariot turned from God to his sin and betrayed Jesus. Now, if you notice, I, I've been calling him Judas Iscariot because Judas was a very common name in the first century. Not anymore, is it? No, I, I, I was raised Irish Catholic and went to Catholic school, so we were all named after the Apostles. So, you know, one of the nuns would say, you know, uh, James, and four of us would go, yes. <laughs> say, Peter, three of us would go, yes, <laughs> right? And, and so to go through the whole litany of the apostle names, we were all named after the apostles, but none of us were named Judas. None of us, none of us got that name. And, and so, you know, it, it's, I've been calling him Judas Iscariot because it's a common name, but from now on, we'll just call him Judas because you know that that name means traitor and betrayer. We had a very similar thing in the American Revolution. Uh, George Washington put a great amount of trust in a general up at West Point, but that general's plan was to surrender to the British. And when his plan was discovered, he defected to the other side. His name, Benedict Arnold. And that is a name that is often associated with being a betrayer or a traitor. And that's bad, but Judas was an apostle. I mean, he walked with Jesus for over three years, and he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, a little bit of money. And so the title of our message today is, The Man Who Once Walked with Jesus, The Tragedy of Judas Iscariot. As we come to chapter 27, we remember from chapter 26 that Judas, again, had betrayed Jesus for money. We also saw that Peter, who became an early leader in the church, he denied Jesus three times and he wept bitterly. And you get the impression that Matthew is sort of painting a picture for us. He's like an artist, and it's, you have on one side of the painting, you have the, the courage of Jesus— and on the other side of the painting, you have Judas and Peter, who are just complete cowards. Peter ends up full of godly sorrow and repentance, and Judas full of regret and despair, but no repentance. Yet, to be honest, as hard as it may be for us to hear this, I, I think we may see some of Judas in ourselves, a guilt-ridden sinner in need of divine help. Now, we saw last time that the religious leaders have charged Jesus with blasphemy, making himself out to be God. So let's continue to spy on the religious leaders, and then we're going to put a tail on Judas Iscariot. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1 and 2 says, When morning came, remember they had been trying Jesus at night, 
Seems like they took a little bit of break, and now the morning's there. All the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Now, if you recall, they can't put him to death. Only the Romans can because Israel is under Roman occupation. It's part of the Roman Empire. It's verse 2. And when they had bound him, they tied him up, or maybe he had already been tied up, they led him away and delivered him to, some versions say, handed him over to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So as the dark night of deceit and denials and lies turns into day, it is now the morning of what we know as Good Friday. And the religious leaders are plotting how to get the Romans to kill Jesus And they know what they're going to have to present it, so the charge is a charge of treason. This guy says he's a king. We know there's no king but Caesar, and we know what Caesar does with those kind of guys. He strings them up on a cross. So when you're walking down the street with your son, you look at the guy dying on the cross, the very public, and you say, listen, son, you double-cross Caesar, that's what's going to happen to you. Don't do that. He teaches a very visual, visual lesson. There's no intention at all for the religious leaders to reconsider all the conflicting testimony that they just heard and possibly even paid for it. There's no facts. There's just fury. They just hate Jesus. And so we called them last time or the time before the sort of the Supreme Court of Israel. They take Jesus tied up and they take him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, to prove that he is a danger to the Roman Empire. The religious leaders, honestly, they want Jesus to die on the cross. You say, well, why is that? Well, it says in the Hebrew Scriptures, Moses had written it many, many years ago, that, that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so by hanging him on a tree, hanging him on a cross, they will totally discredit Jesus... For his followers, remember that lots of followers are in Jerusalem at this time for the Passover. They're going to discredit him by saying God cursed him. But the New Testament tells us in the book of Galatians that actually that's what happened. That he was cursed by being hung on the cross for your sins and for mine. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that this is going to happen. Why? Because Jesus has been telling us for, all, for quite a while now. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 through 19. Now Jesus, uh, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and on the third day he will rise again. So they bring him to this guy, Pontius Pilate. He's the governor. He's also called a prefect. What's a prefect? It means it's an army officer that is in charge of a difficult area to keep order. And Jerusalem was a pebble in Caesar's shoe. Well, let's put it this way. It was a rock in Peter's shoe, in Caesar's shoe. He, he couldn't stand the place. And Pilate didn't even live there. He just came into town for the holidays because the Jews were such trouble to him. By the way, side note, you might not be surprised, Pontius Pilate and the Jews absolutely hate each other. But as we often see when it comes to Jesus, enemies are united in their mutual hate and distrust of Jesus and his followers. 
Pilate was very insensitive to their religion. He came into Jerusalem and put pictures of Caesar all over the place, which they considered to be complete blasphemy. And that got him into, uh, into trouble with Rome. Caesar was like, just, just keep the peace. That's all we want. We want taxes. We don't want to make a statement. Let them do their religion. Let them do what they want. Just keep the peace. Uh, the Gospel of John tells us a lot more about uh, Pontius Pilate. And he shows us that Pontius Pilate was in a tough spot. On the one hand, he's got to support the Roman Empire. So if this guy's really a threat, he's got to do something about it. And he has to pacify the religious leaders. And you think, well, that's great. Just kill Jesus. You'll kill two birds with one stone. But the other problem is he knows that Jesus is innocent. The Romans didn't like to kill innocent people. And then again, on the other side, he also knows that there's a lot of people in Jerusalem who are behind Jesus. And so that might incite a riot. And he's going to be in trouble with Caesar. John 18.31 says this, Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So what will happen soon? Soon there will be an unholy alliance between the Jews and the Romans, or the religious leaders and the Romans. Now, I think it's very important to understand that right here we have the two governing bodies, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, and the Roman Empire, the two most powerful courts that would be known to a Jew. They make a judicial judgment against Jesus. The scripture tells us something interesting in the New Testament. It tells us at the cross there is both justice and mercy. Now, the justice of these other courts, of the Romans and the religious leaders, was corrupt. But on the cross, we see the true justice of God and the mercy of God. And so the justice of God for sins is placed upon Jesus, and mercy is offered to any who would put their trust in him. Let's go to verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he, Jesus, had been condemned, was remorseful. You're like, he turned him in, but all of a sudden he's having second thoughts about it. Another version says he was full of remorse. Another version says that he was seized with remorse and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, very important, verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Another version says, well, that's your responsibility. We might put it in our language. What do we care? That's on you. You did it. That's your problem. Now, perhaps Judas is watching everything. And now he knows that Jesus is actually going to do what he said. He's actually going to lay down his life. He's actually going to go to the cross. He's not going to call down a legion or 12 legions of angels to wipe the place out. Jesus clearly himself wants to go to the cross. And like it did for Peter, his guilt, his shame. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. It all came down upon him at once and it began to crush him. And he began to wilt under his guilt and his shame. He began to experience what I would refer to as the massive damage from one small decision. Isn't that an amazing thing of life? 
You spend your whole life building up a good name or a good reputation, and then you do one thing, and it destroys everything, and the damage is great. So it says that he's remorseful. Being remorseful, he tries to give back the money. In verse 4, what he says is absolutely critical. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. You see, after walking with Jesus for over three years, Judas knew that Jesus is innocent. If you were to go up to him and say, hey, what, what sins did you ever see Jesus commit? He'd say, none. So you're saying he was innocent. Judas would say, not only would I say he was innocent, he was perfectly innocent. There was absolutely nothing wrong with him. And so here you have a man, he's completely distraught. He goes into the religious leaders, he goes into the priest, the rabbi, the pastor, and he's just beside himself. And what would you expect to encounter? You would expect, come, sit down. Let's talk about it. Let's go to the scriptures for some hope. Let's pray about it. But that's not what Judas gets, is it? Judas gets, hey, that's your problem. You made your bed. Now lie on it. You got to accept the consequences for yourself. No gospel. No good news. No mercy. No forgiveness. No mercy triumphing over judgment. No hope at all. To the religious leaders, Judas is not a man in spiritual need. He is not a man who is clearly experiencing hell on earth at the moment and needs the forgiveness of sins. He's just a guy they use to further their case. And so what do they do? They now turn a blind eye to him. Their calling, their job was to help this man. They were to help him find the mercy and forgiveness of God, to help him find peace with God. But they lack mercy. They lack the compassion of Jesus, and they send him away still seized with remorse, still wilting under the crushing guilt. Now, the religious leaders should feel remorse too. Judas betrayed innocent blood, but what are they doing? They are condemning innocent blood themselves, but it doesn't matter to them. You see, the religious leaders in Israel, in addition to being you know, priests and rabbis and you know, scribes, they were to bring justice to the people. They betray their own office. They were hired to help people and to, to make sure people tell the truth, and they actually hired people to lie The penalty in the Old Testament, in their law, the penalty for false testimony in a capital case was you died. And so they themselves deserved to die. So what is the result of the actions of Judas, his regret, his remorse, and then the response of the religious leaders? Look at verse 5. Then he threw down the pieces of silver, the money he agreed with them to betray Jesus for, in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. So distraught, so unable to find peace for his soul, he went out and committed suicide. Judas, in his anger and despair, wants no part of the money at all. 
I want to appeal to your senses just for a moment. Try to, if you will, sense how distraught he might be. Carrying that money in a bag, and whether he was already in the temple or he went into the temple, he takes the bag and he flings it across the room and it lands on the stone floor. Can you hear the money? Ting, 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 ting. Can you hear it? Can you feel what's going on in his soul? Then Judas goes out and he actually kills himself. There's a commercial like that on television. Have you ever seen it about a guy whose who's brother was in a bad way? And he goes, well, I kept trying to get to him. I kept trying to get to him. And then he, very emotionally on his face, he goes, then he actually killed himself. But it's important, really important, that there's no indication in the scripture that this, is, that this damns him to hell. In Acts chapter 1, there's a, a similar story about Judas. It, it just gives us some events that Matthew doesn't give us. And it indicates that Judas went to hell, but not for his suicide, but rather for turning away from Jesus. Remember, we have to turn to Jesus and trust Jesus, but he turned away from Jesus. Now, I know many of us were brought up to believe that suicide automatically sends someone to hell. That is a very, very tough case to make from the Scripture. I personally hold too high a Christology, meaning I hold too high a value on the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Scripture is clear, the only thing that will send someone to hell, you're already destined there, that's going to keep you going there, is you refuse Jesus. You don't want God's provision to get to heaven. And so when people say that that automatically sends you to hell, that's a tough case to make from the Scripture. You may be surprised to know, but many of you probably would say I can agree with it, is that most people, and I'm not talking 50%, I'm talking in the probably high 80s of percentage, maybe 90%, will have a time or times in their life where they will lose touch with reality, where they will not be in fully control of their senses. So here's a man who once walked with Jesus so full of despair and without hope. And if you read modern, secular, psychological literature, they will tell you that that is really the main reason why a lot of people commit suicide. It is the combination of extreme despair and no hope. Like they see no way out of it. And this becomes a way of thinking, I can just end this, and, and I can end it, there, and that, you know, it will all be over. And so full, so full of despair and without hope, he takes his own life. Boy, this is where the church can really step in, isn't it? To offer people hope. Many of us have been in extreme despair, And it was the hope of Jesus Christ that rescued us from that despair. Now, the question is, theologians argue, is it a sin? Uh, Some say no, if they're not of their senses, it's not a sin. Others would say it's a clear violation of the commandment, do not murder. Uh, I'll come down right in the middle, as I often do. You're like, you're such a wuss, Pastor Jim. I'll come down in the middle. I do think it is a sin, 
But I don't think it's one that necessarily sends someone to hell. Because if their trust is in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has paid the price for all of their sins. In the United States of America, suicide is a very serious thing. The suicide rate in our country has increased 33% from 1999 through 2017. It has increased 27% in the last 15 years. Now, other countries have higher suicide rates, but in many ways, other countries are ahead of us in the treatment of such things. The, the statistics are staggering. Suicide is the fourth leading cause of death for people between the ages of 35 to 54. Fourth largest. The next one floors me. It is the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 34 years old. You know, the medical system, they... they they often say that they, they don't know what to do. They, they throw up their arms. You think, well, people just need to go to, to get care. But, you know, most people who commit suicide have actually recently been to the doctor. They've actually recently been to the doctor. Most people who commit suicide are described by the medical community right now, and there's a great move to try and do something with this. Most people who commit suicide are described by the medical community as people who have just fallen through the cracks. Again, a tremendous opportunity for for the church. Tremendous opportunity. One of the things they say is that people will go in for medical treatment, and then they think they're feeling good, and then when they come out, they won't continue, they won't go back on the follow-up visit, and then, and then what happens is they just go back into the same place or worse than they were before. And the, and, the, and, and the medical community argues, should the follow-up be reimbursable by insurance? Well, let's let them argue. And why don't we be the people of follow-up? Why don't, why don't, if you're in that boat, why don't you just come and say something to somebody? And we'll put together a team of people that are going to touch base with you every day just to see how you're going, how you're doing. And, and here's another thing. Don't buy into the myth that you can't ask them about it. That's a complete myth. You have to ask them about it. You have to ask them. People say, oh, but if I talk to them about suicide, that will make them more inclined to do it when the exact opposite is true. If you talk to them about it, then they know that you know and that you care. In our country now, it's actually going on in the state of New Jersey among the education system. Kids under 10 are now beginning to talk about suicide and schools are discussing how to address it. It's become a a normal thing for people to talk about it. Parents, please listen to me. If you have a gun, man, you've got to lock it up. You have to. I don't care how well you think your kid knows how to, how to handle a gun. You've got to lock it up. 
You got to lock the medicine away. You cannot leave it out. You can't leave it out in the open. Because how often people said, I had no idea. I didn't know. We need better communication. I would encourage every one of you, whether you're inclined to to be suicidal or just because you want to be someone who serves people, to put this phone number in your phone, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number. It is 1-800-273-8255. Just put it in your phone, S-Suicide Hotline. That's all you need to do. You can look it up real quick. You'll go, I don't know how to remember the name of it. And someone be, is there to talk to you. You can equip them. You can help them with that. Again, most people, they've been to the doctor recently, yet suicide is now the 10th leading cause of death overall in the United States of America. In 2015, 44,000 people committed suicide. It's a situation that cannot be ignored. If you need help, you need to get it. There's no shame in going for help. There's absolutely no shame in it at all. And you need to get help fast. Don't sit on it. And you need to set up a network of people. They're saying the biggest thing that really can prevent you from doing it is actually the follow-up and having a network of people who care. Let me ask you a quick show of hands. If you knew someone was there, how many of you would be willing to be a person in the network of care, just sending them a text to see how they're doing? Look at that. Look at that. Suicide has touched almost all of us in some fashion. Most of us know someone who has committed suicide. It is amazing how many of us Know it. It is amazing of us how many who, people who know people that are talking about it right now. And they've even mentioned it to you. As a pastor, there is absolutely nothing worse than doing the funeral of someone who has committed suicide. When I train pastors about doing uh, suicide funerals, uh, they'll say, I've done some funerals before, Pastor Jim. No need to worry about it. I go, you haven't done this one. You haven't done this one. And like, what's different? You're going to stand up there and you're going to go, I haven't been here before. Normally when you, uh, do a, you, know, you do a wedding, right? The first two rows, they're intently listening. Oh, love, beautiful, I grade it. The people in the back are like, hurry up, we want a party. When you do a funeral, the first two rows, they're, they're, just, they're just blown out. They're not listening. It's the exact opposite. And it's the people in the back that are kind of listening and, and, and thinking about immortality and stuff like that. And some of them are in the way back having a high school reunion. So insensitive to the family. They're yucking it up. The people in the front row are weeping, and you're yucking it up in the back. But when you do a funeral for a suicide... 
everybody, everybody is in a really bad place. Because everybody has some sense of guilt that maybe they could have helped. You know, the last time I talked to him, now that I think back and I heard some things or I thought some things or, you know, I've been meaning to text that person for like six months and I never did. Everybody feels it. Everybody feels the pain and sadness of a life lost too soon. If you're here today and you're feeling that way, in addition to getting help or, or maybe there's some other problem that, that's just, it's just weighing upon you and you just, you don't even know how to, you don't even know how to deal with it or, or just you're conflicted with inside yourself over something. Let me give you something very, very important to remember that you know, that you know, like many things, the way you feel about something today is often not the way you'll feel about it tomorrow. And so today, it might make all the sense in the world to take these drastic measures or, or to start doing something that you know is, is not good. You're not going to feel that way in time. Get help. Get help. Seek the help of a mental illness professional that, that specializes in suicide if it's suicide. Because you go to too many other people and they just, just tell you gobbledygook. Even your Christian friends, man, you know, hey, take two verses and call me in the morning. Or you, you, go to your, you go to your doctor and maybe they throw just some pills at you. And it might even make it worse. <laughs> Give yourself a chance to lead the life that God has for you. Give yourself a chance to let us see you lead the life that God has for you. Verse 6. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury. That would be the temple treasury. Because they are the price of blood. This is disgusting religion at its worst. These guys are so self-righteous. You know, when I first started to preach, there was a word I was using a lot from my trucking days, and it was the word stinking. My wife said, don't use it anymore. I'm going to use it now. (laughs) These guys are so stinking, self-righteous, that to them, the money they gave Judas is ritually impure. No sense that they have any ownership in this. No sense that they did anything wrong. It's like, it's okay for us to give him the money to betray Jesus, but it's not okay for us to take the money back. They just totally indict themselves in it. Verse 7, And they consulted together, and bought with them the potter's field. A lot of scholars think it was a place where, it was a field where a lot of uh, people got their, pot, artists got there and people making pots and stuff like that got their pottery from. And so, but there wasn't really much there anymore. So therefore that field is, uh, uh, th- sorry. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers 
in. Some versions say foreigners in. People who probably, it was probably people who died in Jerusalem. Or perhaps the unclean people that died in Jerusalem. You can just picture the arrogance. Oh, we'll use this unclean money to buy an unclean field to bury unclean people. Verse 8, therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day, would be to the day Matthew was writing. Then was fulfilled, that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. So hundreds of years earlier, both Jeremiah and a combination of different places in his prophecy, particularly chapter 19, and also Zechariah 11. Uh, Typically what happened is in a a composite citation when you combine uh, Bible verses, They didn't have chapters and verses like we did. You would normally name the more prominent of the prophets. Uh, Jeremiah was a a major prophet or the more esteemed prophet, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus lived. And they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they, the children of Israel, priced, and gave, uh, gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. <laughs> Not only did God know that he, they were going to give Judas the money, he knew that Judas was going to come back with it and what they were going to do with it. In Zechariah, the payment, the prophet Zechariah, the payment of 30 pieces of silver uh, was made to get rid of Israel's shepherd, their leader, the same price that they paid to get rid of Jesus. Sadly, ancient Israel had a history of rejecting good and great leaders. Men like Jeremiah. Men like Zechariah. And the result was they ended up suffering under bad leaders. This is what we call God's passive judgment. Bad leaders. Do any of you feel like the United States of America right now is under God's passive judgment? If you don't, you didn't watch any television this week. It's terrible. It's terrible. And while these religious leaders think they are in control, none of them are stopping the plan of God and the mission of God from moving forward they're actually fulfilling the mission of God. Now, you may want to take this from the point of Jesus' crucifixion, but you may also want to take it and give you hope in your own life that God is so powerful, he can even use the sin of people to accomplish his purposes. And yet, he still holds people responsible for their sins. Once again, Matthew is showing us that the cross of Jesus Christ was not an unfortunate tragedy that happened to Jesus. It was God's plan of redemption. Now, some of you might say, what in the world does that word mean, redemption? Redemption means to buy something back. And so God's Redemption is God's buying back of men and women by delivering them from sin and the punishment for their sins. Jesus bought back. Jesus paid on the cross. 
And to show that his payment was sufficient, God raised him from the dead. That being raised from the dead, Jesus in a resurrected body is what makes Jesus, shows all of us really, and makes it see that Jesus' death on the cross was so significant. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he pay with his own blood? So we would never have to give our own blood. And when we talk about the giving of blood, that means to die. So we would never have to die for our rejection of God. But what did Judas do? Judas took on the curse of hanging on a tree. We, most, most of us believe that Judas hung on a tree and it says that he fell down kind of in, off the, down and, and you know, his guts all split out. So he was hanging on a tree. He took on the curse himself. He died for himself instead of allowing Jesus to die for him. But there is a condition to redemption. It's not really something you do. It's a, it's a response that you have to what Jesus has done for you uh, to receive the forgiveness of his uh, sins and eternal life in heaven. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says this. These are Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark. Now, after John, that's John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel. That word just simply means good news of the kingdom of God or of the kingdom of heaven. Same thing. And saying, this is what Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. What is he saying? It's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here and it's now. And look what he says. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I am glad that you are here. Super glad that you're here. Please, 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 I want to become your friend. Really. Just, just come up and say to me, I don't believe any of this stuff. Fine with it. That, that was me for the first 29 years of my life, to be honest with you. I mean, I would say I believed it, but I really didn't. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might ask, wait a minute now, you told us that Peter, and I'm, I'm smart enough, I've been around long enough to know that, you know, you know, was he the first pope or something like that? What's the deal with that man? Like, like, I'm smart enough to know that he denied Jesus, you said it, and he became a leader in the church, and Judas betrays Jesus, and he hangs himself. How is it possible that Peter clearly ends up in heaven and Judas in hell? And your logical question might be, does God forgive or doesn't he? Yes, he does. But you have to ask. You have to repent. Judas was full of deep regret and despair, but not repentance. Peter was full of godly sorrow and repentance. In Luke chapter 22, as he's talking about the events, not all the gospel writers had all the same events they listed in there. Uh, some people say that means they're inconsistent. If they're all the same, you'd say, oh, they all got together and they, that's collusion. After the Last Supper, remember that night? We studied that already that night where the apostles, like everything they do was dumb. Before the cross and the resurrection, the silly apostles are arguing about who is the greatest. Can you imagine that? Walking along, well, I think it's me. Oh, no, I think it's me. I think it's Peter. I think that, like, you think one of them would be smart enough to go, oh, how about Jesus? Maybe he's the greatest. But none of them seem to be that bright. 
They give me great confidence. Don't they give you great confidence that God could do something with you? Then we read Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, that's Peter. You know, in the Bible, they all got dual names. Simon, Cider, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, why? Because he's going to fail. Another version says, when you've turned back to me, we could say, when you've repented, you've turned to me, strengthen your brethren. And that's what he went on to do after his failure. He became a preacher like there was no tomorrow. He was really the first guy who could combine the fire of the Old Testament prophets with the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, he looked at the crowd of religious leaders like, you killed him. Where'd the denier go? And so Peter became this great man of God. Now, remorse and repentance actually have some overlap. Remorse is a, is a feeling of deep regret. Repentance is, is a change of mind and a change of heart, and I would say a change of action towards God. Remorse is, and I know many of us know what this is like, remorse is like laying on the couch with a cinder block on your chest. I mean, you can't even breathe, you feel so awful. And you may even try to make it right, but it just doesn't seem to, it just doesn't seem to work. Repentance begins by seeking the forgiveness of sins from God. And then it goes and tries to make it right. And even if trying to make it right with a human doesn't seem to work, you're already confident that you know you have forgiveness from God. Essentially, it comes down to this. Judas goes to the wrong people to make it right. He feels remorse and he goes to the religious leaders and he finds no hope. And he is so distraught that he gives up on life. Your life is the greatest thing God has given to you other than his son, Jesus. Your life is sacred to God. That's why you and I have no right to take it. It is so sacred to God. You were created in his image. Judas' remorse was destructive, realizing that what he did was wrong, realizing his sin was wrong. It led to intense anger towards others. It led to intense self-hatred and self-loathing. And eventually... It led to his own death because he took his own life. You know, you might not take your own life, but you may be a very bitter person. And that can easily happen when you try to bear your sin upon yourself. Because Judas found that just giving back the money 
wasn't going to work. There needed to be more. That's what actually, that's what man-made religion is. I will do stuff that will make God happy with me. Really? How are you sure? Are you sure you did enough? What if you mess up tomorrow? Well, I'm a good person. Well, how good is good enough? What if you have a bad day? There's a lot of people that would believe that you are, you are saved, but if you have a bad day, that you can lose it. I think too much of the cross of Jesus Christ to, to talk like that. Jesus said, we said it, that, that, that we are to repent and believe in the gospel. We are to repent. We are to turn to God from our sin. Some people do that. And we're to believe and, we, and, and put our trust in Jesus. And, and some people might say they do that. We are to believe in the gospel. And so some people, we think, oh, it's a good idea. We'll stop doing what we're doing. And then we say we have to believe. A lot of people say, well, I believe. You say, well, how do you, are you going to heaven? I am. How do you know? I'm a good person. That's not believing. That's not. That is not. See, God decides what is believing. Believing is putting your trust in Jesus Christ, not by your standard or my standard, whether I think or you think we are good people. And we have to believe in the gospel, God's provision for the forgiveness of sins. We have to do both. We have to turn to God and we have to trust in Jesus. Perhaps this might help some of you. Some of you have probably heard it. The old repentance train analogy. It goes like this. Judas knew that he sinned and he wanted to make it right. Judas thought he was on the train that was going the right way initially. But then after seeing everything that transpired, he realized he had been fooled. He had been duped. He realized that he was on the train going the wrong way from God. And as it came up to the next station, he pulled that line. All the train workers are like, I hate when people do that. He pulled that line, and the train pulls into the station, and he hops off. Regretting what he has done, he goes, I'm on the train away from God. I regret it. I've shed innocent blood. I betrayed innocent blood. I've done the wrong thing. So he got off the train. But what he needed to do was to walk over to the other side of the tracks. And he needed to get onto the train that was heading back to God. And he needed to ask Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But instead, he went to people who could not remove sins and he knew it. And in his pain, he hung himself on the tree of death. But what Judas needed to do is what you and I need to do is he needed to run to the tree of life. Not the one that was lost in the Garden of Eden, but the new tree of life, the cross of Jesus Christ. There, he would have seen Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And perhaps Judas would have realized he's carrying the weight 
of my guilt and shame. And if you want to become a follower of Jesus, that's the place you have to come to. You have to come to that place when you get on the right train. You know you're on the wrong train. You've got to walk, get off it, walk over to the other side, come back to the right train, and stand at the foot of the cross and look at Jesus weighed down with your guilt and your shame and realize you look at him and all of a sudden you realize it's not on me anymore, it's on him. And put your trust in him. And I believe with all of my heart, even up to that moment, Judas could have lived. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. We did a whole message just on this verse a couple years ago, about three years ago. For godly sorrow, some versions say grief, produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. In other words, it leaves no regret. You realize that God allowed all of that for, you, for your good. Most of us have come to Christ through our sin and the crushing weight of it. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The reality is, is that neither Judas's remorse or Peter's weeping bitterly could remove the guilt of their sin. Only Jesus can. The tragedy of Judas Iscariot, the man who once walked with Jesus was that he never came to Jesus to ask for mercy. He never came to Jesus to ask for the forgiveness of sins. Instead, he tried to bear his own sin. And for that very reason, he misses heaven. But Peter, his reaction to his sin was tears and shame but it was followed up by his repentance, his return to Jesus, his trust in Jesus that Jesus died on the cross in Peter's place for his sin as he died on the cross for your sin and for my sin in our place. And that simple thing, coming to that place and seeing Jesus crucified, And putting your trust in him. That simple thing was used by the Lord Jesus to change Peter into a great man of God. A man who had the forgiveness of sins. A man who had eternal life. And the scripture tells us that heaven rejoices when one sinner turns to Jesus. My dear friends, that is what Jesus Christ calls you and I to today. That we would live our lives at the foot of the cross. That we would know God and that we would be known by him and that we would never fall through the cracks. Never fall through the cracks. Instead of falling through the cracks we would experience the greatness of the kingdom of God. Be used of God to further his kingdom, not in some American highly successful way, but one life at a time. And we would be children of the king, waiting for that day when we see him face to face. Let's pray.